Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Thank you very much, David and Isabella. That was wonderful just to hear uh, how 1 Samuel starts, to hear that read so well. And um, uh, good morning uh, to everyone here at Broadview, as well as those who are listening to this online. Uh, Fantastic to be with you. My name's Ruben, and um, yeah, wonderful to be sharing from God's Word this morning. So uh, we are, as you can tell, beginning a new journey this week in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, We'll be moving across that book and covering most of it, not all of it, obviously, it's a very long book, but um, uh, seeing how the narrative goes across that whole part of God's Word in the Old Testament. And I reckon it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Some parts of it will be familiar to us, parts like perhaps David and Goliath, Saul and his temper tantrums, Um, but I suspect many of us uh, may not know the book in great detail. There will be bits that will be new or fresh or interesting uh, for all of us as we go along. And so it's going to be really cool, I think, to see what God will teach us over the next few weeks. Uh, You can expect as we do so that we'll get a clearer picture on things like kingship. It's a very major theme in this book and, of course, a theme that runs across the Bible um, in, in total. What does it mean for God to be king? But here, Uh, there is going to be a focus on what does it mean for there to be a human king also. We'll explore uh, the tension between God's plans, His sovereignty, alongside what He allows to happen as people make their own demands and their own plans. We'll learn about power, how to use it well, and the consequences of abusing it. We'll learn about the reversal of fortunes, the importance of wisdom and patience, and lots, lots more. Okay, so uh, let's just think about the context. Where does this story fit into the the Bible's story overall? As we open the pages of 1 Samuel, uh, we are taken to a very significant transition point in the life of God's people. Up until now, uh, what's happened is they've settled in the land promised to Abraham but it has been a very volatile and challenging time because of issues, well, lots of issues, issues around things like the unity of the different tribes in this land, uh, especially around a lack of unity in terms of living under God's rule and leading. Uh, You see, God has always been the king of this people, but as we read the book of Judges, they keep turning their hearts away from God to chase after the gods of the nations they were meant to have driven out from the land that they're now living in. They didn't. People live among them. The gods are still there. They worship the gods of the nations and social and moral and political chaos ensues. It's really the book of Judges that tells that story uh, in in lots of ways and uh, it's the book in the Hebrew Scriptures that comes immediately before 1 Samuel. And in that book, as the book of Judges comes to a close, we hear this refrain which captures the problem facing God's people so well, as well as anticipating what's going to come next in the story. Uh, And the refrain is, at that time, there was no king in Israel, 
and everyone did as they saw fit. At that time, there was no king in Israel, everyone did as they saw fit. Uh, Now, the problems in Judges won't be fixed simply by having a king. Uh, It's more complicated than that, as we'll see in coming weeks, but that is where we're heading. We're heading to a point where God's people are ruled by a human king, under God's kingship. Uh, So, it's a story about kingship, but it's a story about how God comes to express His kingship through a human king. And so, uh, the first thing we're going to be thinking about is how 1 Samuel is a story about kingship. But it's weird because instead of starting with the king or even the birth narrative of the king, that's perhaps what we're expecting, we meet, as we heard in that reading, a fairly ordinary family from the country, uh, from the hillside. And so let's come to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah son of Jerohoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Uh, We're expecting to be perhaps introduced to King Saul or his parents. We all know we're going to get there as he is the first king, But instead, first we're taken to the hill country of Ephraim, to a family with no particular prominence. And we meet a man named Elkanah. Uh, You see, there's a list of his ancestors. No one particularly notable. Did you recognise any of the names in that list? There's no priestly line, no ancestry with any hint of a royal claim. He does have two wives, though. Uh, Hannah, which means favour or attractive and Penina, which means fertile, uh, for obvious reasons, or fecund, such a good word. Fertile or fecund is what Penina means. He has two wives, and this suggests that perhaps they're a wealthy family. Uh, it was usually only the wealthy who would have uh, plural marriage in this time and culture, and all, as is almost always the case in the Bible, where there is plural marriage, pops up in plenty of places, there is dysfunction. There's this friction, which primarily comes between the two wives. Hannah, the favoured or preferred wife, has no children, and perhaps this gives a hint as to why Peninnah is taken as a second wife, maybe in hopes that she will bear children and provide for the continuation of this family. Whatever the case, uh, we quickly become aware of how Hannah's inability to have children leaves her in a situation of terrible despair and anguish. Peninnah provokes her, verse 6, because of her childlessness in order to irritate her. How awful. Year after year, this would happen. Leaving Hannah weeping and refusing to eat. We read in verse 8. Elkanah, uh, he tries to help, but comes across as fairly clueless. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? I don't know what to say about that. Like, he just comes... I tried to look this up and there's some suggestion that maybe he's using an idiom that might have made sense to people at the time, but he does just come across as a bit egocentric, doesn't he? He's trying to be compassionate, but really just failing. Verse 9... 
Now, the, the complicated home life, while interesting, is not actually the most important thing to notice about this family. The main thing highlighted here, especially about Hannah, is that this is a family that loves God. They're very pious in the way that they serve Him and in the way that they go about their lives. Every year, we heard, they have this practice of going on a holiday to celebrate specifically uh, this sacrifice, to go and worship God at the shrine in Shiloh and bring um, sacrifices to the Lord there. This is surprising, uh, but in a really good way, it's surprising because in the book of Judges, this hill country of Ephraim is famous for how um, violent and chaotic uh, and idolatrous uh, this place is. It's a place which pops up really in stories of great moral chaos. But for this family at least, they live humbly and in close relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. Hannah's example is one to keep an eye out for across this book. Where you see people like Hannah, relating to God like she does, you know they're on the right track. A key example that she sets here is as someone who models a prayerful dependence upon God. She knows who God is and she models this prayerful dependence upon God which um, is certainly worth us emulating but is also something to keep an eye out for as you see others do that across this book of 1 Samuel. Uh, so here we see Hannah's prayerful dependence upon God. We, we, um, we are told uh, that the Lord had closed her womb uh, which is incredibly hard for her, obviously, and causes her great grief. But what Hannah knows is that God is someone who can be depended upon and called upon in prayer. If He can close her womb, she knows He can also open it, should He wish to. And so she prays earnestly. Verses 10 and 11, uh, she's at, this, at the shrine in Shiloh, one of their, um, their yearly holidays there, completed the sacrifice, she stands up and in verse 10, in deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant and give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head." It's the prayer of a broken, humble, desperate woman as she prays for the child. She prays as one who really has nothing at all to give except for that which she doesn't yet have, a son. And so that's what she offers. She says, if you give me a son, he will serve you. I will give him to you. Her request is full of passion vigour and, importantly, belief. And, well, God answers her request. It's wonderful. Uh, to her great delight, she has a son. She actually ends up with many children, uh, but this son, Samuel, is entrusted to Eli in due course, and he grows up serving the Lord in Shiloh. Samuel will be the last of the judges, and, in effect, is going to be the kingmaker, as the story goes on. It's a very stark reversal for Hannah and this little family. They've gone from nothing, nothing much at all, to having a position of great honour. Her piety, 
The way she loves and, and worships and depends on the Lord is now forever remembered in the story of God and His people. All right, so if, if Hannah is the model and positive example to keep an eye out for, then Eli and his sons are the counter-example and warning. And so let's, let's think about them next. Eli and his sons, the contrast. Do you remember how Eli gets introduced from the reading? As Hannah stands up to pray, uh, in verse 9, Eli the priest, we heard, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. The word chair here is the same Hebrew word that is usually used of throne, it can mean both, chair or throne. And so, it's probably an allusion to the way that Eli exercises rule in some way over God's people. In the ancient world, the distinction between priest and king is often somewhat ambiguous. But the narrator leaves us in no doubt that Eli is not the kind of leader that God can work with. Firstly, he is unable to discern the difference between godliness and drunkenness. It should be abundantly obvious to him, but Eli can't see. He is blind to the working of God. Verse 12, as she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, Hannah was praying in her heart, her lips were moving, her voice was not heard, Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. I mean, if he wasn't sure what she was doing, he could have just asked her, but instead he heaps more burden on this poor downtrodden woman by accusing her of being a drunkard. And then when she explains and says, no, I'm not drunk, he doesn't even apologise. He just, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that, he just says, fine, go away in peace, may the Lord grant your request. It's a fine thing to say, but surely he could have corrected himself. But it gets worse. When we come to the second part of chapter 2 and meet Eli's sons, there is nothing subtle at all in the way we are meant to view Eli and his family. Certainly no, no subtlety at how we're meant to view his sons. Verse 12 of chapter 2, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Uh, in the previous interaction with, um, with Hannah and Eli, in chapter 1, verse 16, Hannah said to Eli, "'Don't take your servant for a wicked woman.'" That phrase, wicked woman, is the exact same Hebrew in the original used to describe Eli's sons. It's something close to worthless woman, in, um, in Hannah's case, don't take me for a worthless woman, and worthless sons, uh, in Eli's son's case. Eli, what's going on here? Eli observes Hannah, he looks at Hannah in her great piety and sees wickedness, while Eli's own sons behave very wickedly but he either has no idea or willfully turns a blind eye. The details in this story make us wonder whether we are meant to understand Eli as literally blind. In verse 22 of chapter 2, um, Eli, who was very old, did you notice, heard about everything his sons were doing and to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And then when he confronts them, he says, what is this report I hear? as though he doesn't have the vision to see it. And his bad side is actually confirmed for us in chapter 3, we'll hear that next week. Uh, the point, though, seems to be that his physical blindness is meant to expose a deeper spiritual blindness, a lack of godly vision and discernment. 
But in any case, what's going on with Eli? Uh, in any case, there is one who sees with perfect clarity in this story, and that is the Lord. In verse 17, the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And so, what follows uh, in the last part of chapter 2 that we didn't read is a scathing rebuke, a scathing rebuke, uh, and God's judgment upon Eli and his family. God says to Eli, your sons will both die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. Okay, so we've met Elkanah, we've met Peninnah, Hannah, then Samuel, as well as Eli and his sons, lots of different characters already in these opening chapters. We haven't met any kings yet, we'll, we will get there before very long, um, not today, but in, in following weeks, we'll meet kings eventually. Uh, and we've started to see how these human characters are giving us the tools we're going to need in order to assess King Saul when we meet him and then King David, who follows. Hannah is showing us, if you think about it, one way of life before God, and Eli is showing us another. Um, so already we're seeing these contrasting ways of living before God, and that's going to help us to assess uh, what comes uh, further on in the story. But as much as these human characters have provided lots of interesting things for us to talk about this morning, um, 1 Samuel is, at its core, a story about God. It's a story about the God who reverses fortunes, who humbles and who exalts, who gives life and who takes it, who pays no regard to leaders who think they are strong and think they have things in hand. Rather, God is the one who gives strength to who He chooses and in the way that He wants to work out His purposes. And so Hannah's song or Hannah's prayer, as Isabella so helpfully read it for us, is the way that the writer of 1 Samuel captures and summarises um, this for us in, in so much viv vivid poetry, it teaches us so much about God and what He's like. I really think it would be worth taking the time to study Hannah's prayer, Hannah's song across this week. Um, perhaps you could make it a project to read it a couple of times across this week yourself, to go back and meditate on it and uh, even try and commit some of it to memory because it wraps up so many of the themes that we will see play out across the rest of 1 Samuel. But just uh, two things to draw our attention to, uh, which will help us to kind of summarise and wrap up what we've been hearing today. The first is that God is one who restores, uh, who reverses fortunes. God is one who reverses fortunes. In her song in chapter 2, Hannah says, uh, she who was barren has borne seven children, she who has had many sons pines away. Um, obviously drawing on her own experience, but also thinking more broadly about what she knows about God and who He is. Um, she's thinking more broadly because she ends up with five sons here, she talks about seven, I guess the perfect number, God gives as many sons as needed, children as needed. Um, but she goes on as well, the Lord brings death, makes alive, He brings down to the grave and raises up, the Lord sends poverty and wealth, He humbles and He exalts, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap, He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. This is a picture of the God who is entirely in control and who has particular regard for what many might think are the nobodies, 
the poor, the humble. They are the ones that God can actually use and work through. Uh, the Hannahs of this world, they may look like, uh, they may look worthless to other humans. We saw Eli make that mistake. To him, she looked worthless. But God looks on Hannah with compassion and delights to actually meet her needs, to lift her up and give her great honour. And the same will be true for her son, for Samuel. But the opposite is true for Eli and his sons. They set themselves against God by making a mockery of worship and abusing the people that they are meant to be serving on God's behalf. God brings life to Hannah, but death to them. As verse 9 says in chapter 2, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. Um, That's a theme that runs right across Scripture. We spent uh, a lot of time, if you think back to the the James series that we had uh, earlier on uh, this year, we we, um, saw this theme played out there. Uh, We see it in the life of Jesus, obviously, a huge reversal of fortunes. The whole world rejects Jesus and condemns Him, but God judges Him righteous and lifts him up to the highest honour. Uh, so you might think about something like uh, Hebrews chapter 5, where Jesus, much like Hannah, offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And secondly and lastly, uh, we see that uh, true leadership must be given, not grasped. God is one who gives leadership to those uh, who are willing to receive it from Him rather than grasp it for themselves. Uh, This last part of Hannah's song in verse 9 and 10 are so important for us to have in mind uh, where we read, it's not by strength that one prevails, those who oppose the Lord will be broken, the Most High will thunder from heaven, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, He will give strength to His King, He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. It's going to be very obvious to us what goes wrong with Saul in due course. It will centre very much around um, some of these ideas. He doesn't fully embrace this reality that it's not by one's strength that one prevails. God is always the one who must be relied upon to bring victory. And true leadership over God's people must be given That's why we actually see David refusing to act in his own strength to grasp it uh, and to end Saul's reign. He waits upon God and in God's timing is eventually uh, exalted and rules in the strength that God gives him. Again, this is such an important pattern and theme across the whole of Scripture, um, particularly in Jesus. From the moment he's born, it's clear to everyone that he is king. But kingship and power is not something that you see Jesus grasping for. He knows that God will give, him, give strength um, to His King and exalt and anoint Him, but in the proper time. I think that's what we see in Jesus' life. At the cross, then, we not only see a great reversal of fortunes, but we also see Jesus showing us what it looks like to be given rule over all people, rather than grasping for it. Which is where I want to end today, uh, with the words of Philippians uh, chapter 2. I'm sure they'll be familiar to us, um, but uh, let me read these as as a way of kind of um, closing and and summarising how we see 
this theme play out in the life of Jesus. Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for um, Your faithfulness. You're always um, attentive to what's going on in Your world. Uh, You are never blind um, to what's happening um, to Your people, for Your people, um, in our own lives and hearts. Uh, We thank You for the way that uh, this particularly played out in Hannah's life. We thank You for her, her godly example, her dependence upon You, and we pray that You would teach us to be like her. We pray that you would give us um, uh, eyes to see your work, Um, help us not to be blind like Eli was, and help us to keep on uh, knowing that you are the God who can be depended upon uh, to, to lift up those who are humble and to humble those who are proud. Help us not to be distracted by the way that the world can be so... Um, uh, obsessed with those who, who look great on the outside but really are, are dead towards you. Help us to be content um, to serve you humbly and faithfully uh, and prayerfully. Uh, we also thank you for the, the way that you have given us a king, uh, the king who um, at this point in the Bible story back in 1 Samuel uh, people were looking forward to but now we're able to look back to. We thank you that we have a king uh, who has not grasped at power, but who you have given that power to and given him a name above every name. And we thank you for the, the opportunity we have to serve, uh, to serve him and to know him and to uh, experience the blessing of his rule over us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.